Welcome to Being Church, a weekly online conversation hosted by ELCA Coaching Ministry with hosts Jill Beverlin, Jason O'Neill, and Tammy Devine. This episode on the untold story of Black Lutheran History, Part 1, recorded July 15, 2020, features Rev. Dr. Lawrence J. Clark II, St. Mark Evangelical Lutheran Church, Chicago, Illinois, and Rev. Dr. Richard N. Stewart, Adjunct Professor and Graduate Advisor in Administration, Evangelism, Stewardship, and Communications at United Lutheran Seminary, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm Jill Beverlin. I'm the National Coordinator of Coaching for the ELCA, and I'm one of your facilitators today. As we begin, it's important that you know that this time is meant to be a safe and brave space for church leaders to bring the truth of who they are and how they are doing at this time. We are taking intentional steps to live more fully into God's dream for us as the inextricably interconnected body of Christ. And these types of conversations are the crucible in which lasting transformation begins to take place. So with that, how have we been church with individuals and with communities? How are we being church? And how are we called to be church with all people and creation in an ever-changing world? Today, we are honored to have the Reverend Dr. Larry Clark and the Reverend Dr. Richard Stewart with us to share the untold story of Black Lutheran history. Dr. Clark has offered to bring us into a time of centering and will also help us with more extended introductions today. Thank you, Larry. Thank you, Jill. Um, I'm going to ask uh, uh, the elders in the in the in the room. I I, I hear that uh, uh, Reverend Smith is in the room. If Reverend Smith is in the room, if you would give me permission to to move forward. Amen. Amen. Thank you for the permission of uh, being able to to um, being able to to move forward. Um, uh, I am the Reverend Dr. Lawrence James Clark, and I am unashamedly African American and unapologetically Lutheran. I'm one of those singing pastors, and there is a testimony song that was not written down that comes out of the South and West Africa. Uh, Dr. Y.T. Walker, in his book, Spirits Dwell in Deep Woods, um, speaks about what God has done in the life of the believer. And he sings this song, I'm glad I've got that old-time religion. I'm glad I've got that old-time religion. I'm glad I've got that old-time religion. And I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad. I am a, uh, a keeper of the story, the historian in my family. I do the genealogy. Um, it all started with the movie Roots, um, along with uh, teachers and others that put me on a path to love history, her story, which intersects with God's story. History was my major in college, and I took my first African-American history course at San Francisco City College, where I was exposed to the very beginnings which led me also to know more about my Lutheran history and heritage. Jeff Johnson wrote a book that is now out of print and print on demand, Black Christian, The Untold Lutheran Story. 
Dr. Carter G. Woodson in 1926 thought that this nation, America, the United States, should recognize the accomplishments of African Americans. So in 1926, he dedicated Negro History Week during the week of Frederick Douglass's birthday. But in 1976, the year of the bicentennial, the time was expanded to one month, 50 years later, to encourage African Americans to celebrate their history and heritage. African American history is American history. Somebody just missed that. So let me say it again. African American history is American history. Amen. Can we all we can celebrate the fact that African Americans have been a part of the Lutheran Church since 1669? African American mm. Lutherans have been in this country for more than 350 years, longer mm. than many European immigrants whom we generally think as of being Lutheran. And today we realize and recognize that we stand on the shoulders of all those who have gone before us. As a matter of fact, if the truth be told, we wouldn't be where we are today if it had not been for those who have gone before us. Man. So we remember and thank God for the saints and all those who have gone and before us who gave and worked and shared to build blessings and to leave legacies. We must always remember and never forget all those saints who have gone before us who gave their lives for the work of ministry. We as Lutherans have a rich history and heritage, but many have never heard and even some have forgotten. Mm -hmm. The Bible says it like this, we have a goodly heritage. How can I forget the likes of Daniel Alexander Payne, who graduated from Gettysburg Lutheran Seminary and later became the Bishop of the AME Church and founded Wilberforce University. How can I forget about the Alpha Senate, a non-geographic, all African-American uh, Senate of congregations and pastors? Jehu Jones, the first African-American pastor to be ordained. Boston Drayton, the first missionary to Africa from the United States to Liberia. Frederick Lutheran Church in, in St. Thomas, Virgin Island, the second oldest church in the ELCA. Dr. Addie J. Butler, the former vice president of the church council. The Reverend Dr. James Kenneth Eccles, former president of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago, the first African-American seminary president in North America. The Reverend Dr. M. Yvetta Bullock, newly retired assistant to the presiding bishop, Elizabeth uh, Eaton, with responsibilities for leadership in this church. The Reverend yeah. Dr. Sherman G. Hicks, former bishop of the Metropolitan Chicago Senate. Emma Francis, deaconess. The Reverend Dr. James uh, Capers, the author and composer of the Liturgy of Joy. The late Reverend Dr. Will Hertzfeld, presiding uh, bishop emeritus of the AELC. The Reverend Dr. Nelson W. Trout, the first district president, which was equivalent to the synodical bishop. And the list goes on and on and on. Amen. And as we celebrate 50, the 50th anniversary of the ordination of women in the Lutheran Church and the 40th anniversary of women of color, I must also recognize the Reverend Dr. Maria Alma Copeland, Reverend uh, Erlene Miller, and the Reverend Dr. Cheryl Stewart Perrell. These are among the first African-descent women of color to be ordained in the Lutheran Church. We must remember and never forget. So let me uh, introduce to you my friend, my brother, the Reverend Dr. Richard Stewart, who is also very passionate about this work and has done a lot of research and documenting of this history and will be presenting the very beginnings, part one. Believing that the leadership uh, in congregational ministries is primarily a communicator, 
Uh, Dr. Stewart has shaped his ministry and studies around communication and congregational ministry. As congregational leaders plan, teach, preach, and administer, they focus on sharing both information and the skills for others to pass on information. That information is written, oral, speech, music, and pictorial arts. The theater, dance, and all sorts of human behavior are all ways we share the word of God. He has been researching African-American Lutheran history now for more than 35 years. I now turn this presentation over to the Reverend Dr. Richard Stewart. Thank you, Larry. Now if I can get my screen to come up, it will kind of walk through that history in a kind of a particular kind of way. <clears throat> ah, ta -ta. And we'll start at the beginning. And Dr. Stewart, if you want to share your screen, I know Jason has made you a co-host, so you have that capability on your end. Uh, do you have it now or not? J Jason, not can you just go ahead and share it, Jason? Yes, one second. All right, thank you. <laughs> Oh, sometime about 1973-74, uh, a guy by the name of Grover Wright, many of you remember him, who was a recruiter for African-American pastors in the church. And I always thought it was kind of strange to have a, a lay person recruiting pastors for the church. But he had been a lay associate in the Philadelphia area and had become staff on the National Church to do just that. Mm. Um, when he came to Wittenberg uh, to kind of recruit some folks that were undergraduates, I said, well, I'm already in seminary. Uh, do you have any assistance for me? He says, no, you're already in the system. So knowing that I had grown up in a, in a Lutheran church, I realized that uh, as I started doing this history, that every one of my first three pastors were all black Lutherans. Alan Youngblood, Rudy Featherstone, who was an intern in my home congregation when I was growing up, and Ed Dixon. And it wasn't until I got to college that my pastor had changed, and it was Talavaldus Gulbis whose son was also a classmate at Wittenberg at the same time. Um, growing up in the church, I was president of Ohio Luther League at one point, and so I was a system kid. I was not recruited to be in the church. All I had known was this was the church. My parents had been AME on my mother's side and Baptist on my father's side, and they decided to become a one-church family, so we were mission partners at the beginning of Ascension Lutheran Church in Toledo, Ohio. That was the second mission church that Alan Youngblood started. The first one was Annunciation in Philadelphia, and the third one was Advent in Cleveland. So in one sense, I, my experience in the Lutheran church has almost always been tainted by the fact that I had always had mentors who were black Lutheran pastors. So about 1973, uh, 4, Grover asked me to see if I could do a, Luther, a Lutheran history of blacks. I said, well, you know, there are folks who are already in seminary teaching who could do that. And he said, well, they all said no. I said to uh, one of my mentors uh, who had been the president of the seminary, and I said, well, you know, I'm not a historian. He said, yeah, I know. But I'm a decent reporter. And he said, that you are. So here's the report. <clears throat> Missionary work on this side of the Atlantic began in 1637 by Jan Campanius. 
trained at Uppsala, was a missionary to Indians in America and sent by the Church of Sweden. Jacob Fabritas is noted to have baptized a black man in Sunday, Palm Sunday in 1669 named Emmanuel. I think that that's the first baptism of a black person in the Lutheran Church in this country. That same church had black members in his congregation in Albany, New York City, and northern New Jersey. Early American missionaries, Justice Falconer, entered the University of Halle in 1693, where he studied under the theology of August Hermann Frankel. With that Halle training already in place, his ordination to ministry in the United States was the first on the continent, and his ministry was not limited to the Germans in multiple locations as he continued his work. Secondly, the Danish West Indies Company provided pastoral leadership to the Danish citizens who then populated St. Thomas in 1666 and established Frederick Lutheran Church celebrating their 350th anniversary in 2016. So that's now their 354th anniversary. When they annexed the island of St. John in 1717, Nazareth Lutheran Church was established in 1720. They also purchased St. Croix from the French in 1733. The expanded mission there built a, a fort and also dedicated the, the church on that same property at Christavern in 1734. Simultaneously, the chaplain celebrated the first worship service of the congregation and the dedication of the fort. That congregation celebrated its 175th anniversary year in 2009. I served that congregation as well prior to my coming to the seminary. This is St. Thomas, this is St. John, and this is St. Croix. On this side of the Atlantic, in this country, Gary Van Guinea was born in Dutch Guyana, was captured, sold by slave hunters, as best we can figure out, by his own family history. But by 1705, he and his wife were members of the Lutheran Church in New York. He obviously worked for his freedom and the freedom of his family and purchased property in the Raritan Valley, which is now Huntington Valley, if anyone knows the western side of New Jersey. That's horse country. He was known as a property owner, but because of the laws prohibiting ownership of property by slaves or black persons, the deed was not placed in his name until 16 years later. A faithful Christian, he invited his neighbors to come to church and invited his pastor to come from New York. And so Zion Lutheran Church's first service was held in the living room of Ari Van Guinea. He was a good steward of the property entrusted to him by Providence. When the Palatines came over and settled western New Jersey, guess where they worshipped? In his house initially, before they built the church on the property that he gave to the church, which still exists today in, in uh, New Jersey on the western side. A map of that area means that he literally gave property that was his to the church to be built in the 1730s. And we also have a property, uh, a piece of the, of the property deed, which he did sign. In Germany, one wonders, you know, where was there any addition to looking at people of African descent in terms of the church in Germany? In 1704, Anton Amo was uh, born, we think, in Guyana. But after that, he was taken as a three- or four-year-old manservant 
boy servant for a duke's family in Germany. And the duke raised him as like his son. So he educated him. And so Anton Wilhelm Amel was baptized in Halle, Germany, and was also then educated along with the duke's children. And then matriculated at the University of Halle in 1727. His first disputation was on the thesis of the role of the Moors in Europe. That dissertation is no longer available. We can't find it. But there's a notice of his matriculation at Wittenberg in 1730. He obtains a master's degree in 1730. In 1734, he completes his initial dissertation on the absence of sensation in the human mind. 1734, he is noted as registrar at Wittenberg, where he is also retained as a magister of legends. In other words, he was a master's teacher. He participates in the praises of the disputation of Johannes, the owner of this minor's thesis, Ederum dictum errorum, the competent menti bel corpi nostros vivo in organico. Needless to say, he was uh, someone who would stand out in a crowd in Germany at that point in time. Doctor of Philosophy at the University of Halle, he participated in the disputation of J.C. Putsch at Halle. He's taught at the University of Jena. And he flees to Germany and returns to South Africa, uh, South West Africa in 1748. He dies in 1753 in a canoeing accident. He is esteemed in, in, in Guinea as a, an esteemed scholar even today. So one of our African scholars from Guinea, and I had two different versions of who he was, one from Germany and one from his homeland before he died. He taught at Halle from 1736 to 1739, before moving to Jena University. Henry Melchior Muhlenberg completed his studies at Halle in 1738. So there is no doubt that somehow these two men crossed paths at that university. So Muhlenberg had his travels to the United States. He arrived first in Charleston, South Carolina, and a pair of black heathen who were sold as slaves to the white Christian came on board on ship, and he questioned them about matters concerning that they knew none of the truth. So he said that very clearly that this population needed to hear the Christian language. When the, when the second ship took Muhlenberg and the Salzburgers to Savannah, there was an extra lady on board, a runaway slave. It was Muhlenberg who asked her to whom she belonged, displaying the knowledge that he had, that harboring a runaway slave could bring arrest to all on board. Somehow in the six months that Muhlenberg was in England learning English, he also became very familiar with the laws on this side of the Atlantic. And that's part of the footnotes even in Muhlenberg's works. Muhlenberg noted that if it will not preserve, produce severe judgments if people who pretend to be Christians use their fellow creatures who have not been redeemed along with themselves as mere body slaves and do not concern themselves about their souls, the future will show. As we read his journals, he found that his father-in-law, Conrad Weiser, served as an Indian agent 
and was known as a skillful negotiator with the representatives of the Indians of the Six Nations, which basically was the property above Pennsylvania into the New, New York Territory. Um, Muhlenberg sometimes traveled with uh, Mr. Weiser and encountered scattered Lutherans who chose to have their households baptized and catechized without any distinction based upon race or status in the home. One of the, the beneficiaries of that missionary work into upstate New York was John Bachman. Born in Rhinebeck, New, Jer New York, early formal education was in natural history. He was a kid who ran the woods. But when he came to want primary education, he came to Philadelphia and both learned and taught in Frankfurt, a section of Philadelphia, Germantown in Philadelphia, while in training for ministry. Because of his earlier training in the woods in, North, in, uh, in upstate New York, he became a, a trained botanist. And so he co-wrote books with John Audubon and was in 1945 elected as an associate of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Bachman's hare, Bachman's sparrow, and Bachman's warbler are all named in his honor. So he was multi-talented and multi-gifted. In, in, in 1815, January 14, his ministry began at the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Charleston, South Carolina, where he remained until his death, February 24th, 1874. So he was a long-term pastor of St. John's, as well as doing some other work in the South Carolina Synod. <clears throat> he ministered to African-American slaves as well as white Southerners with an open membership to Negroes as early as 1816 when he asked the church council could he work both with blacks and whites. In 1832, he sent Yehu Jones North to be ordained by the New York Ministerium, and we'll get to Jones in a little bit. In 1835, he was a kind of master's person for Daniel Payne, who was an 18-year-old educator who had a school all of his own, which taught black and white children. But South Carolina and Charleston officials decided that a black man could not teach children anything and that they removed his license to teach and then closed his school. Well, being defeated as an educator, which was what Daniel Payne really wanted to be, he had letters of recommendation from his Methodist pastors and friends in Charleston, South Carolina, and also one from John Bachman as he headed north. We'll get more into that later. So Bachman had sent one person north to be ordained, one person north to be educated, and then one person was ordained in Charleston because he wanted to send someone to Liberia. And that too was a member of his congregation, Boston J. Drayton. By 1862, Bachman had a black Sunday school of 200 with 60 teachers in his congregation. At that same time, there was a census taken of Lutherans in Charleston, South Carolina, in, in the state of South Carolina, and one-fourth of all Lutherans in South Carolina were black. The irony is, in 1962, there was nothing recorded in the register of the churches serving in Charleston, South Carolina at that time, both ULCA and ALC. <clears throat> the three characters. Dehu Jones was born in Charleston, South Carolina in 1786, son of a slave who gained his freedom and owned a fine hotel. 
Jones was a, the Jones family was Episcopalian, and Yehu was a tailor who worked out of his father's hotel. But he also then decided that he wanted to be at this church where this Lutheran pastor was and join his church in 1820 and paid his pew rent. In 1832, he was convinced to, to be ordained by both Bachman and the ministers of members of the congregation who sent letters of recommendation to the New York Synod of the Lutheran Church with the understanding he would serve as a missionary in Liberia, part of the Black to Africa, Back to, to Africa movement. But the people who were running the program said to him that he was a bit older and they wanted someone who was young and vibrant. So he was unable to raise funds for his Liberian mission. Pastor Jones was instead asked to head to Philadelphia. And a pastor there told him he would never be accepted because of his color. So in June 1833, the local synod appointed him to be a laborer as a missionary among the colored people of, of Philadelphia. February 1834, his new congregation, St. Paul's, voted to build a church. In June, they laid the cornerstone on a plot of land identified in the census tract as 150 South Quince. With just 20 members, they and other supporters contributed more than 1,000 at the time, and the church was dedicated in 1836. That was 40% of the mortgage. With promises from the community and religious leaders, in other words, other Lutheran bodies, to help pay off the remaining $1,300. Jones traveled a circuit that took him to Harrisburg, Gettysburg, Chambersburg, where he preached, baptized, married, and buried more than 2,700 African-American families. In 1838, the community leaders whom Jones described as respected white gentlemen approached him and said that they would pay off the mortgage of St. Paul's if he assigned ownership of the church to them. He agreed and stayed on as pastor. But his backers evidently paid nothing on the mortgage, which fell into arrears. Pastor Jones then attempted to stave off the foreclosure by putting together a rummage sale to pay off the church's debt. Members and friends of St. Paul's gathered sale items at a store owned by Mrs. Rex on Sassafras Street. But just as they were ready to have the exhibition set in order to be open for the public view, Mrs. Rex was prevailed upon to abandon the enterprise and have nothing to do with it, the congregation. So in 1839, St. Paul's was sold to the sheriff's, sheriff's auction. Pastor Jones continued to lead the congregation, which met on Sunday mornings at Benazay Hall on 7th Street in Philadelphia. In 1845, he organized a convention in Philadelphia's Temperance Hall, where he urged listeners to petition local authorities for civil rights for blacks. Bitterly stung, Jones authored a lengthy pamphlet in his defense. I have not failed. There was strong prejudice against me, he wrote, prior to his death in 1853. The building still stands on South Quint Street, and the marker is there as a part of the historical register for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Daniel Alexander Payne, the second to be sent north from Charleston, South Carolina. A free black at age 19, he was directing his own school. And when students would bring things into the school that, they, that he could not identify, plants, animals, insects, well, he would go to the local botanist, who was John Bachman, who co-authored several books with John Audubon, who answered the questions Payne could not answer for his students. The little professor was challenged by South Carolina laws 
regarding education of both blacks and whites. And finally, the South Carolina legislature made it illegal for blacks to teach or run schools. Payne, wanting to be a teacher, was then sent north from South Carolina with letters of introduction by his Methodist church leaders and from John Bachman. They all urged him to consider Africa. Payne resisted. The Student Society on Missions at Gettysburg was seeking to support a student in his studies. Payne said yes with two restrictions. Number one, he did not have to be Lutheran or adhere to the teachings. And number two, no training for African colonization. After two years of study, Payne was nearing the end of his studies. In 1837, the Franklin Center was speaking out and challenging the church bodies that supported slavery. And Payne was one of their speakers that was sent out to congregations to speak against the, uh, the travesty of slavery. And near the time of their organizational meeting, the Senate ordained Payne would become an outspoken speaker on abolition. Payne served the black congregation in Troy, New York, and there was also a historical marker in Troy, just off the square in Troy, and was ordained June 9, 1839 in Forgeboro, New York. In that first year, he became ill and retreated to Philadelphia for medical care. There he met with leaders of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, who quelled his fears that the church was not ready for or wanting educated clergy. In 1846, his name was dropped from the rolls of the Franklin Synod. Well, Bachman was not to be deterred. Boston J. Drayton, another freedman, member of St. John's, was ordained just prior to departure for Maryland, which was a, a section of the horn of the backside of the head of Africa, which then became a part of Liberia. There he created a mission, school, church, and infirmary. And uncertain about financing, Drayton made trips back to raise funds from Lutherans and from Southern Baptists. One of our colleagues found a dissertation in the Southern Baptist Seminary in South Carolina about Boston J. Drayton being a missionary for the Southern Baptists. So literally, he was coming back to raise funds occasionally for his church in Liberia then. But he was not just limited to talking to Lutherans about that mission. So he was recognized by both churches as being a part of the missionary process. In Liberia, he became vice president of that separate part of Liberia that merged into the country of Liberia. He was the vice president of Maryland and was instrumental in the merger. At the time of his death, in a canoeing accident, he was the Chief Justice of the Liberian Supreme Court. By 1880, two congregations were accepted into the New York Ministerium. There was a church in, in Reformation in Hartford and a Trinity Lutheran Church in Greenport, Long Island. Also during that period of Reconstruction was the time when the Missouri Synod began its planting here in the United States. And at one point, the Synodical Conference, which was their missionary arm to both to red and black heathen, began its work and surveys so that they said that there was a, a deep sense of mission directing them to, south, to the south and based in New Orleans. John Detcher was called to survey that work among black heathen in 1877. 
the irony of all this research that I've been doing is that John Detcher's grandson was my advisor in college and seminary, Carl Hertz, at Wittenberg and Hamill School of Theology. Little did I know it was going to circle right back to me. In 1879, Niles J. Bakke was sent to head up the Negro missions in the South by the Synodical Conference. So by 1889, there was a church founded in Trinity in Houston with a bench set up for Negroes to worship, and they favored a Negro mission in Houston. There was also training for pastors in the Springfield Seminary. Emmanuel Barthlong entered seminary, but he died three months prior to graduation. Stuart Doswell, Lucius Talley, entered the Springfield Seminary and graduated in 1902. In 1903, Luther College was started in New Orleans, and Emmanuel College was started in Concord, North Carolina. In 1904, William Lash met James Doswell, graduated from Springfield Seminary, and seminarian John McDavid was prevented from graduating because he decided to get married because he did not ask for permission to be married. McDavid, undeterred, went to St. Louis, started an independent Lutheran church and school, Grace, and was admitted by colloquy in 1905. In 1912, Rosebud School was started by Rosa J. Young. In 1922, that became Alabama Lutheran Academy, Selma. And in 1946, St. Philip's Lutheran Church in Philadelphia, with Joseph Lavallee as pastor, came upon an interesting dilemma. They no longer needed synodical conference money as to support their congregation. So if they were independent, they weren't necessarily a member of the Sonical Conference, who were they to be a member of? He was advised to go to the District Assembly in Niagara Falls and sign the Constitution, thus becoming the first black pastor and the first black congregation in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Later in his life, he became the first black, first black vice president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. <clears throat> There were missionary work in North Carolina and Western Virginia and Eastern Tennessee. Um, North Carolina Senate ordained Michael Cobb. The General Senate ordained J.D. Kuntz in 1880. Nathaniel Clapp and Samuel Houghton in 1834. But they were not given pastoral privileges only to their congregations. And they were not supported financially. William F. Pfeiffer was the best of the educated of the pastors, and they floundered without financing. They sought assistance from the fledgling Synodical Conference, and they got the same pastor who came and talked about black pastors again for the Synodical Conference, and most of them could not read and write, so they were removed from the Synodical Conference roster. Pfeiffer, in 10, because he was educated, refused to leave his charge in Concord, North Carolina, and continued to serve pastorates until he was moved to Baltimore, Maryland, St. Philip's, where he served from 1904 to 1911. Baltimore's story is kind of interesting all by itself, St. Philip's Lutheran Church. Maurice Hoyer was a member of St. Peter's Lutheran Church and saw a need for religious education for black children in the Ivy Lane section of Baltimore in 1890. So, this jeweler purchased an abandoned gristmill, 
taught Sunday school in the area near Morgan College, and the mission was originally called Our Savior's Lutheran Mission. That church is now St. Philip's, and it's been served by the following pastors on the right-hand side of the column, including its latest pastor is Louis R. Tillman IV. I'll leave that up for a minute or two. Immigration in the late 1880s. Lutheran immigrants came from Europe and the Caribbean. Caribbean Lutherans worshiped in New York. In 1913, in the Bronx, Danish Lutheran churches from the Virgin Islands joined with the newly formed United Lutheran Church in 1919. In other words, at the, the beginning of the ULCA, there were representatives from the Virgin Islands as a part of the beginning of that new Lutheran body. The mission director, Zine and Corbet, helped form Trinity Danish Lutheran Church in the Harlem YWCA in 1920. A Negro deacon is from St. Croix. Sister Emma Francis joined the staff in 1922. And on January 1st, 1923, the current site of Transfiguration Lutheran Church was secured in Harlem. In 1926, a Negro deacon is also from St. Croix joined the staff, Sister Emma Francis. And then in 1928, Paul West, also from St. Croix, was called as pastor of Transfiguration Lutheran Church. Two other congregations were also formed in the metropolitan New York area, Holy Trinity in Jamaica, Long Island in 1934, and St. Paul's in 1942. Stay tuned, there's more to come, and we'll have some conversation and questions about even my own upbringing with the pastors that I had, starting with Alan Youngblood. Thank you so much for this rich history and for sharing um, a history that has been largely hidden from us, Dr. Stewart and Larry, for setting this up so well. So friends, our guests have given us narrative, language, and perspective to take with us into our breakout rooms. I pray that we have the courage to be vulnerable, honest, and open to what the Spirit may reveal about each of our roles going forward. As Dr. Stewart said, stay tuned. Please remember that in this space, you are invited to use this time to speak the truth of who you are and how you're doing, to listen, or to simply be. And here's another important perspective we want you to take into the breakout rooms. Based on feedback we've received from more than one experience in the past few weeks, we'd like to offer some additional context for our conversations. Please be mindful of who you are in the room with. Do you bring power and privilege? Even if some of us don't feel like we have power or privilege, doesn't mean this isn't true in how the world interacts with us. Please keep this in mind especially in our small groups and how we are listening to others and inviting their stories. And here's an additional important framing. All it means when people say you're speaking from a place of privilege is that you're likely to underestimate how bad the problem is by default because you are never personally exposed to that problem. It is not a moral judgment of how difficult your life is. So. For white people in this space, this is a time for us to practice our awareness and our awakening. We can listen to others and briefly name our own feelings, ideally in that order. 
Be curious about others during this time. How might their feelings and experiences inform your life and ministry? And now for our breakout room instructions. We'll open the breakout rooms in a minute. On most devices, you will be sent automatically into a room. Some of you may need to click the join button in order to get there. We will come back to the large gathering a little before the hour and we'll send a five minute warning before this happens. In the breakout rooms, please spend a brief minute introducing yourselves and then dive into these questions. What is speaking to you most from the presentation today? How does this connect with the congregation you serve? We invite you to lean into any discomfort and ask questions of each other that will support awareness and learning. Wrapping up your time together by each answering the question, what's my next most faithful step? If you have any questions or concerns during your breakout time, please notify us by clicking the Ask for Help button. God bless your conversations. It's so fun to see the screen just populate as the rooms close and welcome back everyone. Thank you for um, that special time in small group. So I'm wondering, we will just take two minutes to unpack as the large group. So without um, um, giving away the confidence of your small group partners, I'm wondering if you could, uh, just two of you unmute and just name very succinctly a theme that you heard in your conversations. Hi, Jill. Hi, Christy. Our next most faithful step is to listen. Yeah. yeah. The first duty of love is to listen. Thank you for that. One more. One of our members in my group expressed how positive it seemed at the beginning of the history and then somehow turned more negative as we got further into the history and that surprised us. I would like to say something in that regard that um, we're listening to this story in the context of uh, a uh, resurging Black Lives Matter movement and the implication of these narratives connect with the struggles that we're having now with all the inheritors of the mega story of African Americans within the Lutheran Church and beyond. And, and so there's a, a lot going on about what the storytelling implies for how we seek to live faithfully. And the mm -hmm. fact that uh, these stories have been uh, marginalized in many ways, not always perniciously, but in many ways, just shows you why there can be such a variety of responses to something like Black Lives Matter because people are don't want to be educated they don't want to know these things and the implication of the story it's not just what we said but why do these stories sound strange or unfair or with other questions you know attached to them yeah yeah the truth connected to these stories is hard my friend yeah and and these stories have been largely hidden from us and so we again so thank um, the reverends, Dr. Clark and Dr. Stewart for sharing with us. And, and because we are right at the hour, um, friend Larry, I, I, I turn it to you to give us a final wrap up and blessing, please. Actually, we lost Larry. Yeah, let me unmute myself. Yeah. Oh, um, okay. I, yeah, thank, thanks everybody for, um, from listening in. This is again, this was just part one. 
we haven't even got to the to, to the current parts and and the, the parts moving forward. Um, um, it, it is history, um, and history is a wonderful opportunity. Again, as uh, Dr. Stevens reminded us as well. Uh, thanks, Dr. Stewart, again for your presentation. Um, there's a lot, lots, lots of history um, in our in our in our churches. If you, um, um, my my love for history uh, makes me go and just continue to to dig in and find uh, uh, new information and new things. Um, we have a lot of pioneers that have done a lot of great things within the church, um, along, alongside of other people too. So, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, I want to send you with God's blessings, knowing that um, God is able to do exceedingly more than we can ask or even imagine. I bless you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Be blessed.